All right, folks, welcome to Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. Part of the Mile High Sports Podcast Network, and I am excited to discuss a couple things today. First being the Atlantic Division and just how mad it is, as well as go through the mailbag questions. I reached out. I was begging people online to get some mailbag questions for this week. One of the reasons for that uh, Denver has not had a lot of content come out over the course of these last couple weeks. And with Eurobasket kind of ending abruptly a little bit sooner than I think a lot of people thought it would, it's tough. Nuggets fans and especially Nuggets media are, are scrounging for topics here, uh, especially me who has gone through a whole heck of a lot of them on milehighsports.com. Make sure to go check out all of the articles, including the lineup article that I just dropped on Thursday. But for this one, we're going to go over the Atlantic Division in the first segment, going to do the mailbag in the second and third segments. Should be a lot of fun. Really excited to get through this. Let's start with the Atlantic Division. Boston, Brooklyn, New York, Philly, and Toronto. It's one of those divisions that you don't fully realize just how good it is until you look at it, until you go through every team and say, hey, do they have a chance of winning the title? I think you could realistically say that of the three of those teams have a realistic chance to win the title. And though some of them have longer odds than others, I think you could say Boston, Brooklyn, and Philly all have a chance. Let's go through Boston here real quick. They got to the finals last year. We're up 2-1 against Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors, and then lost all three of their final games. They were very close. They nearly climbed the mountaintop, and in the offseason, they could have sat on their laurels, basically brought back the same team. Instead of that, they make a very aggressive move, going and trading for Indiana point guard and shooting guard Malcolm Brogdon. Brogdon has kind of been off the radar for a lot of people over the course of these last couple years because Indiana has gotten much worse. Brogdon's been injured during that time. But Brogdon is a really good player. He's a guy who averages about 25 and 5. He's going to do it on pretty solid efficiency too. And he's about to go back to a team where he doesn't have to be the lead ball handler. He doesn't even have to be the lead creator. He can defend the second best player on the perimeter as opposed to the best. He can take advantage of those opportunities that all of these stars on Boston are going to be able to help him go through. You put him out there with Marcus Smart, put him out there with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, and his job is just very easy. It's actually very reminiscent of what it looked like with the Milwaukee Bucks back in the day when he was on that team. So I'm not surprised that they went for this move. It was very cheap what they had to give up. Uh, Aaron Neesmith, Daniel Tyson, a first-round pick. This was a good move. Unfortunately, they signed Danilo Gallinari to their taxpayer mid-level, if I'm not mistaken. And it's unfortunate because he tore his ACL in Eurobasket. Uh, actually, it may have been right before Eurobasket, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. But just a really tough blow for him. I think it was the same knee that he had the ACL tear back when he was a nugget. And it's tough. Is nine years later, which I, he's he's had a long and successful career ever since that ACL tear, but it just makes you think what would have happened had Gallo never tore his ACL and what he would have turned into as a player because he had that explosiveness. 
Uh, it never really manifested after that. But I do like Gallo. Uh, hopefully, that hopefully he recovers from this and it isn't the end of his career. Uh, but he's not going to be a factor for the Boston Celtics. But I don't think that he needed to be in order for them to be the leading contenders in the league. You've got a starting lineup that doesn't even include Brogdon. You've got Smart, Brown, Tatum, Al Horford, and Robert Williams, who nearly won Defensive Player of the Year last year, lost it to his teammate, Marcus Smart. Off the bench, they traded for Derek White last year. They traded for Marcus, or not Marcus, Malcolm Brogdon this year. They still have Peyton Pritchard to be kind of their third string point guard. You've got Grant Williams in the front court. I don't remember who else they have, but uh, Grant Williams is one. I'm sure they signed some other center at some point, but they're going to stagger Horford and Williams anyway. They always stagger Tatum and Brown. So this is a team that has probably the best rotation in the NBA, in my estimation. No other team has the better depth, top to bottom, and the better star power uh, to go with it. Because if you're a team with depth, usually you sacrifice the star power and vice versa. They have the best of both. That is why I think they're projected as the favorites on the betting markets, and I think that they should be. They nearly got there last year. They should be better, or at least a little bit more consistent. We'll see if it actually happens or if it was just more lightning in the bottle, but I do believe in the Boston Celtics after seeing them come through, play against Denver. They're a team that feels like they've found themselves, at least a little bit. Now, Brooklyn... Uh, Brooklyn has not found itself. That's that's probably the antithesis of what you would talk about with the Brooklyn Nets. No KD trade, no Kyrie trade this year. Instead, those guys will be back and they'll be adding Ben Simmons, TJ Warren, Royce, Royce O'Neal, among others to a group that should be very, very good. You still have Patty Mills. You still have, or you're also getting back Joe Harris. I forgot about him. Uh, Patty Mills is still there. Seth Curry, still there. Very important piece of that team. Uh, I'm very curious to see what they look like. Do they still have Andre Drummond? No, Andre Drummond went to Chicago. So they're going to start Nick Claxton at center. And that seems to me like it's a pretty tenuous starting center spot. They could be a team that goes and tries to get Miles Turner. They they could be in the market for any other basic player. basically starting caliber big man. But it's going to be interesting to see how they play with Simmons. Simmons is, in theory, a really good fit with Kyrie Irving and and Kevin Durant. Unfortunately, this is the most theoretical team of all time. They just have never played together in the unreliability of Kyrie, of Simmons. It just makes it very difficult to bet on them. Whatever happens, like... They have the talent, but it just feels like they're always going to underperform what that talent says. I don't trust the top of their team to make it to the NBA Finals, despite the fact that I do think that they have the talent to do it. And it's fair if somebody was was to say, yeah, I believe in their talent. On paper, like you could say, hey, they're starting Kyrie, KD, Ben Simmons, Nick Claxton at center, and we'll go Seth Curry as a floor spacer for Simmons and for Claxton. That's a really good starting lineup. And then you've got all of these other guys that you could add 
TJ Warren, Royce O'Neal, Joe Harris, lots of wings there, lots of guys that uh, could potentially have a bit of a renaissance. And you could play a switching style at least a little bit, but this is the second straight year that the Nuggets have taken what I believe to be a very valuable role player away from Brooklyn. They got Jeff Green last year, and that actually really affected Brooklyn. And then this past year, they just added, or this offseason, they added Bruce Brown. So it strikes me that Denver's getting kind of the benefit of this. And Brooklyn, they didn't really replace those guys with the right pieces in my mind. So we'll see what they do, but it's really hard to see them coming out of the East. Like, just doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, New York. The New York Knicks, uh, the bell of the ball for much of the offseason where they were adding Jalen Brunson. It was very clear based off of everything that had leaked out prior to. But they whiffed on Donovan Mitchell, another CAA client. And that's a big deal because you're now left with a group that is probably going to start Brunson, Fournier, Barrett, Randall, and Mitchell Robinson, like that's a supremely average team. It's not good. And anybody that says that that's a team that's definitely going to make the playoffs is crazy. Like there are a lot of other teams that are better. Assuming all four of these other Atlantic division teams are better than New York and spoiler, I have them at fifth in the, in the East or not in the East, fifth in this Atlantic division standing. Assuming all of those other teams are better, you have Milwaukee and Cleveland in the Central Division, and then you have Miami in the Southeast, among other teams. Like, how many other teams can you really pencil in or can be penciled in over New York? I think there's at least a significant chunk. You've got the Hawks, too. Hawks are probably going to be better than the Knicks, so they're clearly a playoff team or a play-in team, excuse me. And they might even be worse than that. They were unwilling to trade Quinton Grimes, who was a rookie for them last year. They actually one pick ahead of Bones Highland, which was fascinating. Uh, Quinton Grimes, he looked good. He looked good in his rookie season, but he played just 786 minutes. Obi Toppin, one of their previous top first over or first round draft picks, also doesn't play enough. For them to really be uh, adverse to trading those guys, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me the way that they've handled their situation. And it strikes me as a team that overvalues what they have, and what they actually have is much closer to a 500 team than it, than it is a 50 win team, which I think they believe that they are. So, going to be interesting to see what it looks like with them. Uh, I would project them to win about 40 games after winning 37 last year. That's just not good. It's just not. Now, Philly. Philly is a team that the expectations are still through the roof. You had them falter in the playoffs last year to Miami, who even though Miami was a better seed, a higher seed, I still think that Philly was the better team. And they lost to them anyway. Like, Philly should have been able to win that series. Embiid, not good enough that series. Harden fell apart in game six. Where have you seen that before? Tyrese Maxey is going to be really good. Don't get me wrong. Tyrese Maxey in year three should be 
the same or better than he was in year two. And that version was a not a borderline all-star, but clearly a solid player. Just somebody who is uh, definitely key to your winning chances. And they got better around that trio by adding P.J. Tucker, DeAnthony Melton, Daniel House. They still have Tobias Harris, though he's not the best fit. He's still a fit for that team. There's no reason for Joel Embiid to regress yet. He's still, I think, in his age 28 season. He's not like he's over the hill at 30. They just added Montrez Harrell to play backup center after dealing with, oh, they had Andre Drummond, who was actually pretty good for them, but then they acquired DeAndre Jordan, and between him and Paul Reed, it just didn't really make sense. They've still got George's Niang to come off their bench as well, so it's not like this is a group that can't win games. That like This should be a group that is top three in the East standings. Like there's no doubt in my mind that they should be that based off of their talent. Whether they actually are that, I just think it mostly comes down to Harden and whether he can consistently be that all-star caliber player throughout an entire season. I just don't think that the answer is yes anymore. There are too many weaknesses on the defensive end. There are too many holes in his game offensively other than when he handles the ball and pounds it into the rock into the dirt. I just don't know what it's going to look like with him as he continues to age, and he is going to continue to get older. I'm not sure what he is right now, but it just strikes me that this is a team that had their shot in each of the last two seasons. They had a really good opportunity, and this is probably their last really good opportunity before you have to start asking major questions about shifting their roster. Now, Harden, I think he signed this extension in the offseason, but they still have some flexibility just in case he struggles and isn't the version of the player that everybody hopes that he is. But they still have the talent. It's just hard to put faith in that team right now. Finally, Toronto. Toronto is such a unique team. They're different than every other team in the NBA. They have fully leaned into length and athleticism on the wing, and they've minimized the number of guards that they have. They've minimized the number of bigs that they have. Everybody is a wing. They have so many players in between 6'5 and 6'9, at least listed on basketball reference. Only three players on their roster are shorter than 6'5, and only two are taller than 6'9. That is insane. That is an insane breakdown. And here's just a list of names that they have that are players that are going to compete at the two through four and will probably still play the five too. Gary Trent Jr., Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, Otto Porter, Pascal Siakam, Precious Achua, Thad Young, Delano Banton, who played backup point guard for them last year, Juancho Hernan Gomez, who they just signed, Chris Boucher, and DJ Wilson. That is a lot of players. There's a lot of guys there, and I think it's too many. I think it's too many players to be happy. There's going to be a lot of guys that are unhappy in that situation, and while like six or seven of them are still going to play very consistently, like uh, Gary Trent will start at the two, but Scotty Barnes will also slide to the two at some points, I think that 
a lot of those guys are going to be upset. OG and Anobi already expressed some disconnect, discontent at his role behind closed doors. I just don't see the player, and everybody seems to think that it could be Scotty Barnes. I just don't see him that way. I see him more as a Draymond Green type than as a... Um, actually, I see him as a very Ben Simmons type player who is at his best, probably the best second option. But they don't have a first option on this team. And they don't have the matchup ability to be able to guard a player like Embiid. I wonder what they do with Giannis. They'll probably switch everything with Giannis and then try to trap him as well. But I still worry about their matchup against him. Against everybody else, I think that they could win. Like even against Boston. Like it strikes me as Toronto being a really good fit to match up against Boston because they can switch a lot. But I just have to wonder, like, is this tenable? Is the not super strong shooting, uh, not super functional positions, like point guard and center-wise, is that a tenable way to play? I don't know. It's possible. They did well last year with it. I think perhaps it maybe will change this year as teams kind of get adjusted from first-year Toronto Raptors to second-year Toronto Raptors. But we're going to see. We will see what they do. Look, if I have to predict the order of this division right now in terms of standing, it would be Boston, Philly, Toronto, Brooklyn, and New York. Uh, Toronto ahead of Brooklyn, which might strike people a little bit funny, but uh, it just seems like they are more reliable in terms of their actual winning. Uh, they're going to be very good at winning during the regular season. But like the Utah Jazz or – yeah, we'll go with the Utah Jazz. If you have weaknesses, they'll be exploited. That feels like a team that could be exploited. But I still think that it's a good team. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to discuss – uh, the mailbag questions. But first, this podcast, as you know, it's brought to you by Superbook Sports. Football is back. I just got done watching Thursday Night Football. Amazon actually did a pretty good job with the broadcast. And uh, the Chargers covered plus three, or they were plus three and a half, and they lost only by three points. So backdoor cover there right at the end of the game. And a lot of people were upset about that. A lot of people were happy about that. And let me tell you, folks. Nobody is more excited to help you with your betting than your friends at Superbook Sports. Superbook brings a Vegas-style wagering to the palm of your hands, and now they will match 100% of your first bet up to $1,000, no matter if the bet wins or loses. You don't have to be at the stadium to enjoy football this fall. Just visit Superbook.com or download the Superbook Colorado app right now and start getting out on all of the action. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. All right, we're back. 
Hack Pickaxe and Roll Ryan Blackburn here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate all the love and support on the program. And for that reason, I am going to get right into the mailbag questions. I received those in bulk over the course of these last few days. I was really excited to answer some of these questions here. I know that I've answered a lot of questions in the form of the articles that I've done over at milehighsports.com, going through the 20Q series, and I'm through question 14 by the time this podcast goes up, or at least by the time you see it in the morning. I will be on question 15, and we'll be answering that on Mile High Sports, so make sure to check those out and go through the Nuggets tab if you have any other questions that you haven't seen answered. All right. Let's go through the mailbag. Let's start with this question by Billy Rink. He asks, how worried are you for the bench's offensive production if Bones misses time? Where does that scoring come from? I would think more staggering of MPJ with the bench uh, to help give them a boost. And Billy, I firmly agree. I definitely think that if Bones misses time, the bench is going to look very weird. You're going to plug Ish Smith into that group. But there is a possibility that you just stagger Murray, too, in that case. Maybe Murray is the guy who staggers. Maybe you play Ish Smith next to him as well, just to have a two-point guard look. But I could see a situation where once Murray kind of feels comfortable and gets back into the swing of things from a minute perspective, which I think will probably be by December or so, he plays about 32, 34 minutes or so, and about 20 of those. A game will be with the starters, and about 12 to 14 of them will be propping up the bench unit. And the other moments, you have Michael Porter out there with the bench unit. You have Nikola Jokic out there with the bench unit. The article that I just put up on Mile High Sports actually has three separate lineups that I can go over here real quick. You've got the bench plus Porter, the bench plus Murray, and the bench plus Jokic. Now, your worry was if Bones misses time. That's definitely a big deal because Bones is in the bench lineup for every single one of the lineups that I I threw out there. So now if you just replace him with Ish Smith uh, in a lineup that includes Murray, Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, and Zeke Naji, I think it's tenable. I think it's fine. It's not great. And you're going to need to survive. You're going to need to play good defense with that group. But it's possible. Now the bench plus Porter... I assume that if you have Porter out there, you can definitely get away with playing Ish Smith. He's just going to run traditional pick and roll. In this case, I had Jeff Green as his uh, pick and roll partner. I think Jeff Green does a pretty good job of rolling down the middle of the floor. But you've got Bruce Brown on one wing, Christian Brown on the other, or in the corner, Michael Porter in another corner, or maybe you have Michael Porter on the wing and he can do some creation. There definitely seems like some opportunities for Denver to go that route. Maybe they run some isolations for guys like Porter and Murray in those situations, but I do think that if Bones misses time, I am worried about the bench, but staggering is the way to go. Next, Nugs in 7 asks, why won't Zeke Naji also be that guy on the bench at 252-ish pounds? 252 is a very specific number. I'm surprised. Did you? I, I don't know if that number was released somewhere or if that's just kind of an estimate from you. But look, if Zeke Naji bulks up and he plays like a center, there's no reason why he can't be the backup center for the team. 
I got a lot of questions about backup center here. I'm just going to run through a lot of them. Uh, Baller for Life asks, thoughts on a Jared Vanderbilt reunion as a backup center, making 4.3 a year for 13 mil over three. Not sure what Utah's asking price would be, but maybe utilize the TPE and help Utah get him off their books. There is something too bad that, but Jared Vanderbilt is a young, valuable player that I think other teams would want too. So you're competing with not just what Utah wants, but also what they can get from other teams in that situation. So I don't think a team would give up a first for Jared Vanderbilt, especially if they're viewing him as a backup. But could you get him for two seconds? Probably. Could you get him for one second? I don't know. Uh, we'll just have to we'll have to see. Maybe maybe in that case they trade one of their other young guys, like a Peyton Watson. Like Peyton Watson would make sense as a guy for Utah because it, it just makes sense to have a guy like that that needs development to go to a developmental team. Jared Vanderbilt for Peyton Watson and a second round pick, that's that makes sense to me. Whether it actually happens or not, I'm not sure, but uh, that seems like a, a reasonable deal if Denver struggles in the backup center department, which they may not, but uh, at Grover... W26 asks if the backup five plan between Najee Green or DJ doesn't work. Do you see a scenario where the Nuggets bring Ishmael Kamigate into the fold at some point this season? It's happened before where players have come over midseason. I just don't see this as a year to do it. Denver's in the middle of a playoff push. They're in the middle of a championship push. I think if they're going to bring over a 21-year-old rookie in the middle of the season just to play like major minutes, that is a really scary prospect. I think if you're having difficult issues, you're looking for somebody who's a little bit more consistent or at least a little bit more proven. Maybe Kamikaze will be good one day, but asking him to be the backup center immediately could spell trouble. He showed some good skills at Summer League, but I would be a little bit worried if I were the Nuggets having to rely on him this year. But we'll see. Maybe that changes. But I want to circle back to Zeke Naji. Just talk about him a little bit. Zeke strikes me as a player who is primed for a third-year breakout. I know the it's very common for Nuggets fans to be very questionable on the backup center spot, on the backup front court in general. And I question that too. I think that's one of their biggest weaknesses on the team. It's just the front court depth behind their starting unit, which their starters are really good. I recently ranked uh, the top back courts and front courts. I have the Nuggets as the top as a top three front court in the NBA, at least the starting front court. Their front court of Porter, Gordon, and Jokic is just behind uh, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Ivica Zubac for the Clippers, and then for the Bucks. Chris Middleton, Giannis, and Brooke Lopez. Both of those, I think it's reasonable to have those teams above them. But for Denver, they have such strong players there that as long as those guys are playing significant minutes, it probably won't be an issue that their front court isn't super great. But it still could be an issue. And if you have just one guy that you can rely upon in that group of Jeff Green, Zeke Nagy, DeAndre Jordan, Vlako Chanchar, Whoever, if you have one guy that steps up 
and fills 15 to 20 minutes a night consistently, that would benefit Denver so greatly. What if Zeke Naji played so well that he deserved to play 20 to 25 minutes per game? Then you could stagger a little bit. You can bring in Zeke Naji early, and maybe you play Michael Porter with the bench unit. That gives you more flexibility to do so. I think there's definitely some merit to that. If I were Denver, I'd be wanting Zeke Naji to break out and be that guy. He's a perfect in-house candidate for it, and it seems like he's working really hard. So I think I would put my faith in him first and see if he can prove it. Jeff Green is always an option to fall back upon. DJ is kind of a break glass in case of emergency guy. Maybe Vlaco eventually gets a, an opportunity or two at some point. But Zeke has to be that guy in my opinion. I do agree with you, Nugs and Seven. Now, April, A-Town Denver, she asks, do the Nuggets have to make a move for backup center if DJ struggles early on in the season? Oh, we'll see. I still think that Zeke can be that guy. I would want to see Zeke play that role for 15 to 20 games because I think that he's their answer in the playoffs. I really do. That if Denver has to go to lineups that don't include Nikola Jokic, the best way for them to make it work is for Bones Highland and Zeke Naji to be on the court running pick and pops. And then you can set up Murray and Porter if necessary, or you can set up KCP. And then you play Bruce Brown next to Nikola Jokic, have him be a perimeter defender. That would be my guess for how Denver manages a playoff rotation. But for the regular season, if it's so bad that you need to go get another backup center, then you got to get a backup center. Like you just have to. You cannot let that crater your season. Uh, Grover W26, he asked a second question, by the way. Do you think the Nuggets will hop on a contract extension with Bruce Brown during the season if he impresses to secure and pass the second year player option? It's tough. Like, I don't think that Bruce Brown is going to want to discuss a contract extension because here are the rules on what they can offer him. Basically, he's getting paid about $6.4 million this season. And the rules for an extension for a one-year contract, which is what it would be, is that you can take up to 120% of that $6.4 million and use that as the starting salary for the next contract. So what is 120% of 6.4? It's about one2 would be about it. So the starting point for his next contract could be 7.6 or just under that, 7.55. That's not enough for a player in Bruce Brown where I just don't think that he's going to want to discuss locking that in. Maybe he will. Maybe he likes it in Denver. Maybe he plays well here. Maybe he enjoys his time and the Nuggets approach him for an extension. And he says, yes, if that's the case, great. That would be fantastic if you could lock in 25-year-old Bruce Brown to a deal that, let's say, it's like three years, 24 million, three or 24 million extension, maybe 26, 27, somewhere around there. That would be great for Denver. Now, I don't think they're going to be able to do that, but maybe they can give him a player option on the end of it and he can still feel like it was paid. But given the money that's about to come into the league, and given that Bruce Brown already sees himself as a borderline starter, I have to imagine, 
he's going to want starter money or close to it. And good bench players get double-digit money. Bruce Brown can't get that much from the Nuggets, which is why I think that this is just going to be a one-year thing between him and Denver. They have their hands tied. They can't really sign him to a larger contract unless they were to kind of do a wink-wink deal where they give him another one-year contract and then they could sign him up to uh, pretty sure it's MLE money, which at that point for the uh, for the contract, it would probably be closer to $11 million a season, $12 million a season at that point. So maybe that's a little bit better and they give him like a full four-year deal or something like that. But we're going to see. I would bet on Bruce Brown not being with Denver past this season. Two more questions here before we go to break. Zane Warner, 21, he asks, what do you think is more likely, MVP number three for Jokic or sixth man of the year for Bones? That's a great question because I feel like a lot of people are just going to immediately discount Jokic for the third over or for the third MVP in a row because they want to see somebody else win it. They don't want to be getting tied down with his greatness. They'd rather appreciate some of the other players that maybe came close over the course of these last couple of years, but didn't quite get one. Cough, cough, Embiid, cough, cough. I think that there's going to be a push for Embiid to get it. I think Giannis will really push hard to get it. Luka, if he takes the Mavericks to a top six seed, it'll probably because he be because he's incredible. If he gets like... 30 points and 10 assists, Luca does. If he exceeds those numbers, they'll probably give him the award. Uh, those are round numbers that would be pretty insane for him to reach because he's also grabbing like eight rebounds a game because he's a big dude. So we'll see if he gets to that point. But with Bones Highland, six man of the year, it's tough. I, I think I'd have to go through some of the other candidates in order to figure out who makes the most sense as a six-man. Jordan Poole, I think, stands out as a six-man candidate this year with Klay Thompson back. They're still going to play Jordan Poole a lot of minutes, but I don't think they're going to start him. So he probably is at the top of the list for your sixth-man guys. If he averages 18-4-4, Jordan Poole, then he probably gets it. Maybe he averages over 20. Maybe... Like, because Tyler Hero won it this past year, playing 30 minutes per game off the bench. Tyler Hero is probably going to want to start, and eventually he'll get that. Like, they haven't extended him yet, but they're probably going to want to start him, I'd have to imagine. So he'll probably start. Jordan Poole will probably come off the bench, so I'd give him the benefit of the doubt. So Bones would have to exceed 18, 4, and 4, or whatever those numbers are, or it'd have to be more efficient than a player like Jordan Poole. It's going to be tough, though. Like that's Those are high watermarks. Bones, last year, he averaged 10 points, three assists, two and a half rebounds. Can he exceed those up to 18, four, and four? That's a tall order, especially on a team where you're going to want to get Murray back involved. You're going to want to get Porter back involved. Jokic is already putting up MVP numbers. Can Bones really average... 18 points per game, that it seems pretty far-fetched to me, but maybe he does. Maybe there's another op- like enough opportunities for him to go off when those guys are resting or just has good games when they're playing because he gets to come off the bench. 
We'll see. We'll see. I would probably say MVP for Jokic. That's probably the more likely. But don't sleep on Bones. Like, if he breaks out the way Nuggets fans and the Nuggets contingent believes that he can, could be interesting. And last question here uh, for this segment. Aaron Hickey asks, uh, shout out Aaron Hickey. The, the sound panels are incredible. Predictions on best surprise storyline this season. For the Nuggets or for the NBA? Let me think about this here real quick. Let's go for the Nuggets. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. I think that Zeke Naji is going to pencil himself into that eighth man spot. And it's just not going to be an issue. He strikes me as a player that's going to continue to work hard, that is going to do everything that it needs, that he needs to do in order for the team to succeed. He strikes me as a player that is going to average about 20 minutes a night. And whether he does or not remains to be seen, but I think I'd bet on it. I think I would. I think they're going to want to play him those. And if he is the player that I believe him to be, then the Nuggets will find an opportunity to involve him more frequently. We'll see. Let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to discuss more mailbag questions. We'll be right back. Final segment, pick action roll. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Let's continue with these mailbag questions. Omar, he asks, what's the NBA equivalent for going for a 64-yard field goal over letting your QB get five yards? Now, I answered this question online already, but uh, this is obviously an allusion to what the Nuggets, uh, not what the Nuggets, what the Broncos did on Monday Night Football, where instead of going for fourth and five, They let the clock run out for some reason and took like 40 seconds off of the clock when they didn't really need to do that. And they kicked the 64-yard field goal, which would be the second longest in NFL history. And they did it at sea level outside. That was a horrible idea. Um, I compared it to DeAndre Jordan shooting a pull-up three when Nikola Jokic's post position with five seconds remaining down one. That seems like a bad idea. Uh, to let DeAndre Jordan pull up from three. It can go in. There's no doubt about that. He's made threes before. It's just not what you would bet on. Second Velton, he asks, do you think we see career years from our core four? Jokic, Murray, MPJ, Gordon. And if so, who has the most improvement? It's a good question. It's hard to see a career year for Jokic, but like, He just continues to prove everybody wrong and continues to get better and better. I think his efficiency is going to be at a career high. I wonder if his three-point percentage gets back to around 37, 38% or so. And he combines that with just the elite touch, having insane floor spacing around him in the starting lineup. And then he just creates so many passes for the rest of the team that he averages close to a triple-double. Maybe it's like 26, 14, and 9, somewhere around there. Something absurd like that. 
And if he does that, then more power to him because I, I just can't really see it. But Murray, I can't really see having a career year just because I think he was at 21, 5, and 4 in 2021 before going down. I don't see him exceeding that this upcoming season, but maybe he does. Maybe he's just better than what I think he's going to be, at least at the outset. MPJ, I kind of felt the same way. Just strikes me as a guy who probably is going to fill a very similar role to what he had in 2021 as well. I think that Aaron Gordon is probably the guy that you see a career year from, but it's not from a stats perspective. Like I think he's going to be the best defensive year that he's ever had. I think he's going to have the best shooting efficiency, both inside and outside, that he's ever had. And though the attempts are not going to be there, he's going to be valued as a fourth member of the core, as opposed to it just being a big three. I think that that's probably the most realistic one. But if I had to say somebody else, I'd probably say Jamal. Because I remember when Zach Levine came back from his torn ACL, he just shot out of there like a cannon. Maybe the same happens for Murray. You never know. Blaker Street, he asks, odds of the Nuggets having three 20-plus point-per-game scores in this season. How about two six-plus assist guys? Good question. I think that Denver was pretty close Back in 2021, you had Jokic at about 26, Murray at about 21, and then you had Porter at 19 per game. It's going to take a little bit for Porter to get up to 20, and not just not from a talent perspective. Like He could certainly do it, but Denver's going to need to get him some opportunities, and they're going to have to make sure that he has those. What I will say is that Denver, back in 2020-21, there were, like, you just go back and watch some of those games. There were so many opportunities where you had Gary Harris taking a pull-up shot. You had Paul Millsap getting a post-up touch. You had Will Barton uh, off the dribble pull-up three. Denver doesn't really have that version of those guys anymore. Like Gordon will get his touches occasionally, but he's probably going to have the career low usage rate. KCP is a low usage guy. I don't see any reason why Jokic, Murray, and Porter can't all cook at the same time. Now, whether they all average 20 plus, I'm not really sure, but I could see it probably at about 40%. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's 50-50. I think it's less likely than more likely, but 40% is probably the number I'd go. And then two six plus assist guys, I think that one's actually pretty low. The way that Murray plays and the way that the Nuggets want to play through Jokic most of the time, I think that he's going to be your high assist guy, and he's probably going to get upwards of eight again this season, while Murray stays at around the four to five range. That'll be my guess. Though he can average six, there's no doubt about that. I think a lot of times you just want him shooting, though, and it simplifies the game for him and for everybody else when he does. At Magic Kimura asks, do you think it's possible for a 70-plus win season this year or in the future? 70 is hard. That's just, there is there is a reason why only one team, only two teams, have won upwards of 70 games. I think that's right. I think it's just the Golden State Warriors, who won 73 in 2016, and it's the Chicago Bulls back in 1996. Let me just look up the minute totals here real quick. 
of the 2015-16 Golden State Warriors. Bear with me for a second. I want to do the want to do the research here real quick. 73 and 9 for that team. And here are the following minute totals. Draymond Green played 2800 minutes. Steph Curry played 2700. Klay Thompson played 2660. Harrison Barnes played 2000. Iguodala played 1700. Livingston, Bogut, Barbosa, you still had a pretty solid bench there. But those three guys playing 2,800, 2,700, 2,660, that just seems untenable for a team like Denver. Like, what are the Nuggets going to do? Are they going to play Jokic 2,800 minutes? That came out to Draymond Green averaging 34.7 minutes a night for 81 games. Jokic could do that, and he's like on the border, like, Could he play 2,600? Sure. Do I expect him to? Actually, yeah, I think he's going to play about 2,550. I think that's what I had him projected for. But for Porter and Murray, I have them projected for each about 1,900 minutes. So that's already, you've got 2,700, 2,600. That is a 1,500-point difference in your star Big three amounts. And if you count Draymond Green versus Jokic, it's about 1,700 total minutes of difference for big threes. I don't think it's possible. Could Denver win 64 games? Could they win what the Phoenix Suns won this past year? Sure. I don't see any reason why they couldn't do that. Think about who the Suns played last year. Uh, You had Mikhail Bridges playing 82 games, but Devin Booker played 68 Chris Paul played 65, DeAndre Ayton played 58, Jay Crowder played 67, Cam Johnson played 66. That's not a lot. Like, like those guys, there's a reason why those guys were very good because their team was great from top to bottom. But it's very possible, I think, that a team like Denver couldn't match that from a minutes perspective. We'll see if they actually do. We'll see if that's actually viable, but it is interesting to think about. Keep bragging.com. Excuse me. Keep bragging calm. He asks, what percentage do you think the Nuggets make the finals? And what percentage do you think they win the championship? What would you set the over under for total number of NBA championships for the Nuggets in the next 10 years? What percentage do you think the Nuggets make the finals? I think for Denver this year, it's probably about, just being fair, probably about 30%, 25 to 30%. I think that they have a real shot. But to say that they have like a larger chance than the Clippers or the Warriors or the Suns, like I think all of those teams have at least double-digit percentage choice or percentage chance. To make it to the finals. Now, maybe it's the Clippers at 30%. Maybe it's the Warriors at 40%. Maybe it's the Nuggets at 20%. And maybe it's the Suns at close to like 8% or something like that. But I just think that it's probably fair to keep Denver at about 25 to 30. And then to win the championship, you probably cut that in half. Like whoever they face, whether it's Boston, whether it's Milwaukee, whether it's Philly, Miami. That team's probably going to be really good. So I think it's probably slightly higher than 50% if they were to make it there. But 
I think odds to win the championship, probably about 15% if I were being generous. And what he said, the over under of total number of NBA championships for the Nuggets for the next 10 years at. Over under. Denver has some staying power. You definitely have a little bit of concerns with MPJ and how long he can stay healthy. But assuming that he can stay healthy for the playoffs, and he's about the same player that he was, I still think you could set the over-under for 1.5. Like I think you can feel pretty comfortable that they're going to get one. The real question is if they can get two. It's tough because that's pretty aggressive. Like I think Nuggets fans, they'd be okay if I set the line at 0.5 and then they could just be thankful that the over hits. That's kind of where Nuggets fans are at. I think that with Jokic, you can feel good about being in championship position for the next five plus years. Five, six, seven, five, six, seven years. Like Jokic is going to turn 28 this year. He should be playing about this level, maybe close to it until he's early 30s, maybe 32. It's going to be interesting to see how he looks at that point. But if he and the Nuggets look anything like what they do now, maybe Bones has developed into a star. Maybe Murray is, maybe Murray and Porter are gone, but they've kind of cycled through other players. Maybe they find a new mix of players that they like. It's hard for me to think about the Nuggets without Murray. Like that would be very weird. Although we did play a full season this last year. Um, I do think that 1.5 though is a very fair line. I think if you're the Nuggets and if you're NBA odds makers, you see that you have Jokic. He's locked up for the next five years. That's fair. Seth Johnson, he asks, who do you think wins the battle of small forward, uh, backup small forward between Davon Reed and Christian Brown? Malone seemed to love Davon Reed last year, but Brown totally seems like a Malone guy. I totally agree. I think that Christian Brown in particular is one of those guys that Michael Malone was like, yes, please select him. Please take him. It's nothing against some of the other guys that Denver has drafted in the past, but Malone can definitely see himself in Christian Brown, like a a grinded out, gritty, hard-nosed, defensive-minded player who loves to compete and is just very fiery, a very competitive personality. That seems like a Michael Malone dude. And as long as Christian Brown shows that he can handle the playbook, I think he's going to get a lot of opportunities. Out of training camp, I would expect Davon Reed to win the battle. Michael Malone loves to give – he loves to give the benefit of the doubt to the veterans because the one thing about a locker room is that you can't go to the rookie immediately or else you're going to lose the locker room, especially if there's a guy that's close. Like you want to make the rookie – prove it with beyond a shadow of a doubt that they deserve to be out there. So I think Davon Reed will get the initial start. He'll probably play the first three, four, five games. And then if he's playing well, he'll continue to play. If the Nuggets need to rest other guys, then maybe Christian Brown comes in for those guys. If Davon Reed gets hurt, Christian Brown feels like a ready-made option. I think by the end of the season, Christian Brown will be in the rotation. But beginning of the season, I, I default to Dave on Reed. And finally, last question. Long podcast here. Wanted to make up for missing a podcast earlier this week. 
Jokic Fever Dream, he asks, what is your most vivid memory of two years ago when the Nuggets completely dismantled the Clippers in Game 7? This was a fun one to think about. I remember seeing this question come through and like, yes, that is definitely something I am answering on the pod. That is fantastic. Most vivid memory. Well, I watched the game at the DNVR bar, something I recommend to everybody. Haven't been the DNVR bar 2.0 yet, but definitely recommend everybody checking it out. It strikes me that the thing that I remember most about that game was how stressful it was. It was very stressful. Denver came back. They were down at halftime. They were down basically double digits for most of halftime or for most of the first half. And I think they crept uh, to a single-digit deficit towards the end. Murray had, I think, 25 points at halftime. And he was keeping the Nuggets in it for sure. But then you just had shot after shot from role player hit over the course of the third quarter and fourth quarter. Gary Harris hit two threes. Jeremy Grant hit a couple threes. Paul Millsap, I think, hit a three. And it wasn't just Murray and Jokic. But those guys were the primary pieces. Porter didn't really play that much. Monte Morris didn't really play that much. Torrey Craig played pretty, like he played a lot, if I remember. He was definitely involved, but it was mostly the starters. Murray, Harris, Grant, Millsap, Jokic. And probably my most vivid memory is just the Clippers completely shutting down. Kawhi Leonard couldn't make a shot in the fourth quarter. Paul George couldn't make a shot in the fourth quarter, bricked it off the side of the backboard. And the Nuggets were just completely under their skin, uh, both in the game and just emotionally. Like the Nuggets had weathered the storm coming back from 3-1. And after they went down 3-1 in game five, you knew that they could come back because you had seen it in the previous round. But the Clippers didn't know that. They didn't feel like that. And so they were talking... Game five with Marcus Morris, Paul Millsap going at it. And then Denver comes back. Jokic puts on a masterpiece in game six. And you start to feel like, okay, the Clippers know that they're in trouble. There is no doubt. Like you still had Doc Rivers projecting some false narratives that he was still very positive for the season, that everything was okay. There is no way. No freaking way. They were rattled. And though they started out winning that game, once the switch flipped for Denver in about the second quarter or so, there was no going back. It was a lot of fun. It was euphoria at that point. It was one of the most enjoyable, memorable nights of my life. Just because you're sharing that with a lot of people in the pandemic where, I don't know if people remember this, but September 15th was the day. It was right smack dab in the middle of when the pandemic was strongest. And so you've got this going on and everybody is just so happy to be out of the house. Got a lot of masks. Uh, You've got a lot of other shit going down, but it was just crazy. Like it was just a lot of fun. And I was very happy to share with those guys. They do a lot of work for the fan base and just putting themselves into a position where they could share that memory with everybody was really, really cool. And I hope 
get to share a lot of memories over the course of these next few months and hopefully next few years. This team deserves to make some memories. This is the best, most talented team that the Nuggets have ever assembled. And it's one of the reasons why I've been going so hard on the preview content during the offseason. Everybody wants to see what happens with this group. Not a lot of questions, just mostly waiting. Mostly waiting with bated breath. So I'm really excited to see what happens. I'm really excited to see what the Nuggets end up doing and how they handle these situations. Hopefully we get more vivid memories. It would be great to have good, vivid, positive memories, but I'll take vivid memories all the same. That'll do it for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate all the love and support on the program, as always. I'll be back on Monday. Uh, I am, I think, going to actually go on vacation next weekend. So you might not see a, a late podcast from me next week. We're going to see. We're going to see how that goes. I want to see if I could dip out right before media day. See if I can make it work. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next week.